HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We hope that you are all staying safe and staying sane. We know that this is a tough and strenuous time, so make sure to take time to check in on yourself, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your community. We would also like to take a moment to pay our respects and honor Congressman John Lewis, He was a legend, and his work will continue on. His inspiration can be seen daily, and he is a giant gone too soon. He will be missed, but he will not be forgotten. We are excited to bring you an entirely new episode of Snacky Tunes today. First up, we have Rob Levitt, who's the chef to cuisine and head butcher of Chicago's public and quality meats. He talks about the pandemic, how the American meat system has been affected, and we also look at some ways to cook up the summer and have some great times when you're stuck in your house and you're cooking in your backyard. Uh, it's a really great and insightful look at butchering and farming in America and how the conversation is more important than ever. Then we head over to the UK to sit with Max Levy, who talks to us about his latest work with his band Garden Center. He's been out in the English countryside where he's been spending the pandemic creating and walking through the woods. It's a really fun, really delightful performance. And we're excited that he could take the time and make up the time difference to sit down and play some songs for us. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. 
Rob, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to sit down with us. And welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much. It's uh, great to be on. So you've spent the last 20 years practicing and preaching sustainable and snout to tail butchering. Do you feel that this approach is more important now than ever during these difficult times? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's always been important, and I think it's now finally getting the kind of recognition it needs, um, not just because it tastes better and it's it's just the right thing to do, but because we're starting to see, because you know, through this pandemic, we're starting to see the cracks in the food system and how damaging the industrial food system is, and that, you know, using small farmers and more sustainable practices is really uh, the healthiest way forward on every level. Let's pull back a little bit because I don't want to assume that ev- everyone listening um, understands how uh, industrial or factory farming industry with a focus on meat is really run. Can you give us a bird's eye view of how this is practiced? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I'll I'll spare all the gruesome details, but I mean, the the biggest takeaway is is you know the, the basically animals and the process of getting a live animal into the grocery store uh, takes takes the the life of the animal for granted. So instead of it actually being a pig, it's now a commodity. It's a product. Uh, It just so happens to be a product that was alive. So, you know, these companies, you know, Swift and some of these other big name companies, um, they find ways to raise animals, whether it's beef, pigs, chicken, whatever it's going to be. They raise them in a method that keeps them tender. So confined, uh, gets them to slaughter weight in unbelievable amount of time, uh, which has a lot to do with what they're fed and other kinds of things that you know, they can use to manipulate their diet. Um, and then the process by which they're killed and turned into meat for the supermarket um, is as a factory model. So the same way you know that your your Ford Ranger is built is the same way a a pig or a, or a cow is goes from an animal to a packaged piece of meat. Um, and, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up when I talk about how the, the current pandemic situation is affecting this factory model is that, um, you know, the you're not going to get the coronavirus from eating a piece of factory farm meat. You're not going to get it from eating a pork chop that was produced in a plant that had a widespread breakout. Um What's going to happen is because of the demand for meat, you've got all of these employees who are doing these brutally just horrific jobs. Um, that's a problem in the first place. And because of the way these people are treated and because of the way they're pushed to produce faster and produce more, um, you know, that's your when you buy that commodity pork chop, you're supporting an industry that doesn't care about the workers. And that's why those outbreaks were so fast and so tremendous. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people can place the blame on the pandemic. And I think the pandemic exposed a lot of the issues on a broader national level or sped up a lot of the breakdown, but it's not the ultimate causation of these issues. Um, I mean, these issues existed long before there was a pandemic. The fact that there were these huge breakouts in the factories sheds 
a really bright light on how awful the working conditions in these factories are. Is. Yeah, and if you follow along, I mean, there have been respiratory issues with aerated pork products, especially in certain, I won't name it, but one of the more popular canned pork products, uh, <laughs> you know, um, where you are just moving at such a quick speed mm-hmm. and the pork meat blood is so fine that you're inhaling it. And because you're moving so quickly and because you're so packed in, you know, these hit health issues... Uh, in many ways, the coronavirus is just the newest epidemic to spread within these meat processing plants. Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest paradoxes that's popped up is, you know, these photos of these empty shelves of there being no meat or shortages in the supply system. And then these photos of a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand different animals that cannot be processed for lack of a better word how does something like this happen how how do you have these overabundances where um farmers are inducing abortions so they cut down on the amount of new animals on their farm and then people who can't even get access to to the food they need to to maintain a, a a diet well i mean it's the it's like we said a minute ago the pandemic caused everything to come to such uh, to such a, a head so quickly that the only the only way to stop it was to shut these factories down like it's going to keep spreading if you don't shut the factory down mm-hmm. if you shut the factory down then all of these animals that these companies have you know genetically engineered to be raised quickly and get to swat slaughter weight in unbelievable amounts of time like that hasn't stopped these animals are still alive these animals right. were were born weeks ago um, and they're they're still there. It's just now they have nowhere to bring them. You know, I mean, like that, you're what, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing you can do. This isn't yeah. how the food system is supposed to work. You know, like uh, a pig should live more than a few weeks. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's like it opens up a lot. It exposes a lot of problems with the way we eat in this country. You know, first of all, you know, I'm a I make my living selling meat to people, and I'm saying nationally here that we, as Americans, eat way too much meat. Mm. Um, You know, we do. We don't need, like, you know, three ounces once a day is more than enough. You know, like, I have access to the best meat I could possibly ever want, and I would say that I eat meat a couple times a week. Um, right. And it's not because I'm, it, it's just because it's, it's healthier. It's practical. You know, I really like vegetables, um, but it's, it's, you know, the way our bodies work is we just don't need that much and it's not great for us. Um, and, you know, like for me to say that is weird, but the, the other side of that is I sell a high end product, but I get, I get a lot out of that high end product. So it's not just the expensive cuts. I've got ground meat and I've got sausage and I've got all kinds of different cuts and I can sell you a delicious piece of meat from a well-raised animal from a small farm. And I will encourage you for that to be the only steak you eat this week or to be, you know, the only thing you eat this week, you know, it's, it's, it's training people to rethink their diet. I think that is important to rethink their diet, but one of the biggest arguments about 
being able to eat high-end meat or limit your intake of meat as a source of protein or as a staple of your diet can be argued as a luxury. And a lot of the times cost gets brought up about people on different parts of the economic scale yeah. saying, you know, I can't afford this high-end ribeye or I can't even afford this high-end ground beef and we need meat because the way that there are subsidies and the way that it's structured to make up a big part of our diet. So how do you get around that issue? I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, we, we are at a place, especially in a city like Chicago, where in some instances, there's no way we can get around it. But if you take a, you know, if you look at it as sort of an average, I have customers at my store that no matter what's going on in the world can buy all the ribeyes they want. Sure. You know, and I'll sell them all the ribeyes they want and that's fine. Um, but when we process whole animals, the way we do, we have uh, a variety of cuts and a variety of, you know, like I said, ground, ground and sausage and all these different things. We take an entire animal and we process it down into as many different things as we can, as many different cuts, as many different, you know, iterations of what you can do with with meat from a good animal as, as we possibly can. Um, and so if somebody comes in and they're on a limited budget and they really, really want to eat better quality meat or meat that they can feel good about, then, you know, I'll have the same conversation. You know, if you can afford a pound of ground beef, then don't eat two eight-ounce hamburgers. You know, like split it up into... Quarter pounders, and now you've just you've just doubled, and it'll be fine. You know, like it's a quarter pound burger from uh, from really good beef will satisfy you in a way that a quarter pound burger from commodity beef won't. It'll have more flavor. It it just it satiates you more because it's a higher quality product. And there's other recipes that incorporate meat and vegetables where the meat sure. is spread out and not the focus of the plate. For sure. Yeah, I feel remiss not for you to share some of those recipes. Well, I mean, some of them are pretty are pretty common at this point. Like, I know plenty of people who will take, you know, you can take a pound of ground beef and you can take two pounds of something simple like a cremini mushroom and you blitz mm. them in the food processor and you cook it all and you make a pasta sauce and you've just, you know, like the bits that, the meaty bits, it's two to one mushrooms now and mushrooms are cheap and it's going to be just as satisfying. Yes. Um, you know, and you can do the same thing with a burger patty, um, or you can just choose how you how you eat your meat. Like you don't necessarily have to have a steak all the time. In my opinion, something like a ribeye or a porterhouse, that's a special occasion kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like I can take one pork hind shank and I can cook that at home in a, in a my crock pot with full of you know white beans and vegetables and stock and all kinds of stuff, and that'll feed me, my wife, and my daughter for you know, we'll, we'll get six meals out of that. Yeah. Um, well, listen, I want to take a quick musical break. And then when I come back, I want to talk uh, a little bit about the supply chain that sustainable butchers work with. And then let's also maybe talk about uh, the biggest outdoor meat cooking season, which is summer grilling season that's coming up and maybe the smart way to approach it during these times. Sure. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Rob Levitt still, head butcher and chef de cuisine of Public and Quality Meats. So we kicked off the first segment with talking about the supply chain and the way that factory or industrial farming is set up. And I'd love some context of how a sustainable butcher or a sustainable restaurant, someone like yourself or Paul Kahn or many of these restaurants dotted throughout uh, the country, what does their supply look like? And what are the biggest differences in the approach to raising meat than these farm factories? Um, well, for us, you know, we're, we're lucky that we've, you know, we've sort of, we've done it right for a long time. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I have farmers that I've worked with going back to 2008, 2007. I mean, you know, my wife and I opened a restaurant in 2008. I already had a network of farmers that I've been working with. Um, and a lot of those are the same ones that Paul had been working with and, you know, some new ones joined along the way, but like I have relationships with these farmers that, that, that go way back. So we're at this point now to where we're supporting each other. They're doing what they can for us. We're doing what we can for them. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing is that, you know, because these are small farms, we've, they haven't changed their prices. You know, they're moving through product and it's business as usual right now. Um, you know, I've heard talk of places that sell commodity meat where they're, you know, they're, they're looking at cuts of beef that are not very sought after and they're still, the price is still going up as much as $4 a pound, which in some cases more than double. I know I have a friend who runs a barbecue place and he, you know, he does huge volume. And so he's getting, he's getting his briskets off of, you know, he's, he's getting uh, commodity briskets and he said they're more than double what they were before this started. Um, I don't have those issues, um, which means that I'm not going to jack my prices up either. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take advantage of my customers just because it's out there in, in the news that commodity prices are, are rising. So, you know, what's funny is how the commodity prices are starting to inch their way up to the high end prices, you know, um, but but that's the thing is, you know, I've worked with these farmers for a long time and we're just looking to help each other through this. I mean, what does that expose about the price of commodity beef and the um, government support uh, that is used to sometimes prop up the business? Uh, I mean, I you know, it's always uh, always weird getting into politics with this stuff. But I mean, there is like there are three companies in the world that control the world's supply of commodity meat. And they're struggling. They're freaking out right now um, for all the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, and it, it just it, it exposes that weakness that, you know, they've done so much work to mess up the food system. And now that there's now that it's it's cracking, it's it's a big deal. Um, whereas if you look at it on a on a much more micro level, on a community level, you know, I my farmer is an hour and forty five minutes from Chicago. You know, most of my farmers are within a couple hours of Chicago, and so because it's a small time operation, everything is pretty stable. And if I go to my friend's butcher shop in Brooklyn, his farms are within a you know a similar distance of, of 
of where they are. So their situation is pretty stable, you know, and I can, I can pick my friends who have butcher shops doing what I'm doing all over the country. We're all in pretty good shape. Um, and I think it, it shows that the way to make a real change is that, you know, you have to look at this more as a, a community thing and less as a global thing. You know, if you can have, go back to the way it used to be and have small butcher shops in every community that can find a, a solid source, preferably from a farm, then the next time something like this hits, we'll all be in much better shape. I mean, you've gone on the record about sourcing and transparency because one of the ways that a lot of these larger meat processing plants uh, run is that you don't exactly know where the meat is coming from. But to you, you think you've said sourcing and transparency is what can maybe lead to fixing some of the issues. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I mean, you know, when when whatever it is, whether it was the you know the swine flu or any of these other health issues that uh, somehow affect the food system, you know, people will ask me, well, how do you know how do you know what's safe? And I, you know, I say it's it's kind of like a cliche thing at this point. But if you're shopping in a supermarket and you walk up to the counter and you say, "What can you tell me about this piece of meat?" If they don't have answers for you, then how do you trust it? Um, if you come into my store, I want you to know as much as I do about the product. I want you to be as excited as I am about it. Like I'm only bringing stuff into my store that I'm excited about, and I want you to know everything. You know. Um, and that, that's a big difference. You know, it's like on the one hand, the, you, you have all these commodity things. Like you see what's in the news. They're trying to remove country of, of origin labeling. So you have no idea where in the world your steak is coming from. Um, and these sort of, you know, government-driven factory operations are trying to do as much as they can to, to you know, to, to sort of put, put blinders on these products so that people just see a piece of meat and they don't know anything about it. They, you know, and they hope that people just don't care. But whenever these things come up, people start to care more and more. And, you know, and that's that's what we're all about. I mean, I'll I'll be totally frank and I'll tell you that I didn't get into butchering um, because I wanted to be a butcher. I, I got into it because I wanted to be able to like I had been in restaurants for a long time and I was working with farmers and working with this great product. And I got to the point to where. I didn't want to be in restaurants anymore, but I wanted to find a way to bring this good, sustainable product to people so that they could cook it themselves and share all the information I'd learned as a professional cook with people so that they could have these great experiences at home. And, you know, now people can't go out to eat and we're seeing that people are treating their they're sort of weekend shopping as though they're going out and they're buying fun stuff to cook at home. And it's like, that's the model. That's like, this is, this is exactly what I want, um, but I want it to be this way all the time. Yeah, I've definitely um, seen more people taking the time to invest in cooking projects or learn how mm-hmm. to cook something for themselves, which I think gives people a bigger appreciation of what they're eating and where it comes from as well. If you're not just going out to eat and you have that disconnect, if you're buying it or butchering it yourself or doing things like that, you have – a better idea of what goes into um, the ingredients. Sure. So I know that you said that not much has changed with where you're sourcing from as far as practices and prices um, because it's it's uh, not set up on a, on a mass industrial level. But have you found yourself 
having to shift any of your own butchering or selling during the pandemic, maybe even outside of just um, social distancing and things like that? Oh, for sure. I mean, like when we reopened, it wasn't just flipping the lights back on. It was, um, we, you know, we took the time while we were closed to figure out how to do this in a way that is safe for our staff, safe for our customers, but also will allow us to sell at the volume that we need to to sustain the business. So we have built and adjusted and rebuilt and readjusted hmm. online platform. We call it the digital butcher shop. And it's, it's, we're hmm. doing our best to offer a variety of products similar to what we had in our real butcher case. Um, and we kind of started small and we're sort of, we're adding things as we can. Um, and you, the biggest question I get all the time is, you know, how do you make up for the fact that you don't have that face-to-face interaction? And it's hard. Like that's one yes. of my favorite parts about this job is is talking across the counter to people. So, you know, we encourage people to, to send us questions, um, you know, through our website or to call and ask. And plenty of people do that. But we're using social media as much as we can. You know, the, the shop has an Instagram page and I have my own and people send me questions about stuff all the time. And, you know, it's it's a funny thing for a guy my age to rely on social media to teach people. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's you just look at it like, well, this this ridiculous social media thing is now like a really important part of my business more than it ever has been. Yeah. So we we're, we're putting out as much content as we can. And then on top of that, we're looking into other ways that we can reach people. Like, um, you know, before we closed down, we had a, a chicken class schedule that I was going to bring mm. a bunch of people in and everybody was going to get two chickens from our chicken farm. And we were going to all have a, a knife and I was going to teach people how to trust a chicken and how to spatchcock and how to break it down into an eight piece. And so now we're talking about maybe we'll do that virtually. You know, yeah. we'll set it up so that you stop by the store and you pick up your chickens and, you know, I'll tell you exactly what you need. And then we'll go on Zoom or Instagram Live or something like that. And I'll take everybody step by step through the process. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and it's fun. Like, I love doing stuff like that. You know, we've been talking about like one of the really successful things that we had been doing at, at PQM for years is hosting wine dinners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would find all these interesting wines from all over the world we'd find bizarre regions of the world that you would never think produce wine and we would bring in five or six wines and do a family style meal and it was really fun so now we're talking i was talking with the wine director the other day about like maybe we sell this so that we have a certain amount and everybody gets four bottles of wine and each course comes as a as a kit and Mm -hmm. you know we go live on whatever medium we choose and i show people how to assemble each each dish and the wine director talks about the wine and you know and how it pairs and how we chose these to go together and like and it becomes this interactive thing uh virtually with a bunch of people who don't know each other and are are coming together over over this situation yeah you know uh, i've done a couple of the take home full dinner kits and it's pretty nice you know um it's it's fun at the end to have a multi-course menu instead of just a one plate of food, sure. which is what the majority of cooking's been. Um, but you know, to go back, what you said is not that I ever took it for granted, but the fact that you could walk into a butcher shop, cheese shop, wine shop, mm-hmm. and have an expert in front of you to ask any question that your heart desired yeah. is something as a customer that I miss. 
you know, and, and there's definitely been a little bit more hesitation on experimenting with any sort of product because I don't want to, you know, waste any funds or waste anything like that on something that I might not outright enjoy or even know how to use. Yeah. So since we have an expert uh, here (laughs) and it is, um, I guess now officially summer, um, you know, grilling and the balance of meat is probably a little bit more of a tougher, a tougher swing than if you're cooking at home or doing something that's more of a sauce or something like that. Because when people think of grilling, if they're into eating meat, it's usually burgers, dogs, chicken steak, and things like that. Yeah. But what would you recommend as a way to either pick a decent cut of beef or pork or chicken and then balance it with something um, with a veg or something that's, that's grill friendly? Um, I think, you know, I don't think there's a big secret. I don't think there's a big, uh, you know, there's, there isn't anything that I can say that's going to make all your listeners go, Oh, it's basically, it's, (laughs) if you get a, uh, you know, a a cut of meat from a well-raised animal, it's going to reward you even more than getting a premium cut from a commodity animal. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so say you come to your on the PQM website and you don't want to spend the money on a ribeye. If you get something like, you know, a flap steak, which sounds extremely humble, um, you know, it's the same thing as cooking a skirt steak. It's just a lot thicker. So what you get is something that is, you know, has a nice amount of fat running through it without seeming fatty. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can char it up nicely and you can have a nice, you know, pink in the middle steak. And it's very versatile. So you can make tacos. You can eat it just as on its own as a steak. You can, you know, you can, you can make all kinds of things with it. Um, and it's like I said before, you don't need to get, if you have four or five people and you get half a flap steak, that's, you know, like two pounds worth, that's going to be more than enough. So um, much, you know, and then, then you have leftovers and I, I, I love leftovers, but it just, it leaves room on your grill for other vegetables. I mean, it's asparagus season right now. And if you had go to my house, mm. You know, like this weekend, we grilled a whole spatchcock chicken, mm-hmm. and I, and that was dinner as it came off the grill. But then it was dinner two more nights, one chicken. Yeah. Uh, but I put two giant handfuls of asparagus on the grill, and uh, you know we had some zucchini that we put on the grill, and you know, and then that's that's what we do. You know, and all of that stuff gets eaten that night and gets eaten for leftovers. I mean, it's it's fun to be able to, you know, like it's the perfect time, probably more than ever, to get a CSA. So, you know, yes. you can come to me and you can get uh, a little chunk of, of really good beef or some sausages or something like that. And, um, and then, you know, you get this box full of vegetables from a small farm and you just throw it all on the grill. Oil, salt, and pepper, throw it on the grill until it's done. And... Uh, you know, that's your dinner. Um, you know, we've, we've been talking with one of our local produce farmers about doing uh, sort of a, a joint effort where we will sell his CSAs, like, or, you know, he'll sell them and we'll be the pickup spot. But then we would also like to offer a, um, like a, like a meat sampler box. So you mm-hmm. might get like, you know, you might get one or two pork chops and then you'll get some less common cut of steak and you'll get some sausages and, you know, half a pot of bacon and like we'll put together, you know, some burgers or something. And for, 
you know, for a price, you can get the box. For if you're getting the the vegetable CSA, then we might give you a discount on the box. This is all stuff that we're sort of working on towards the summer. Um, the other thing that I like to push on people is, you know, if they're not sure what they're doing or if they're they're anxious about spending money, is I love to do what we call a mix grill. So maybe you're having a group over and you don't want to invest a lot in a big steak because you're nervous about cooking it, you know, buy a small steak and buy, you know, buy four, five, six sausages, buy some burgers, buy, you know, yeah. and, and just throw a bunch of different stuff, slice it all up, and then everybody can pick and choose what their favorite thing is. And, you know, maybe you discover that cooking a flap steak is actually pretty easy and they're really delicious. And the next time you want a steak, you just, you, that's what you get. Um, but it's a good way to try a bunch of different things and, and see what's fun. I mean, that's great. And you know, that's what the summer should be about. Uh, when it comes to grilling, it's just a lot of fun and just figuring it out. Um, I want to bring it a little bit full circle, uh, at the end because, you know, there's been a lot of thought pieces that have come out about the future of meat and the future of eating meat. You know, yeah. one of them being New York times, the end of meat is here, which is, a sensational it's title so <laughs> um, and obviously pulls you in and, and you get it of, of why you title something like that. And then when you dig in, that's not really ultimately the a hundred percent, the case they're making. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people have really started thinking about the future of meat and the butchering industry and things like that. Sure. And you know, we've talked a lot about it, so I don't want to get too repetitive, but what do you think, the future looks like and is there some sort of silver lining or betterment because of this situation? Um, so I've talked about this a lot and, you know, I, I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, I think pre pandemic, the, the talk was always amongst people like me, the talk was always, how do we find a way to like globally to, shed the light on how bad the factory model is and just wipe it away and only have access to shops like mine. And mm -hmm. that's impossible. I mean, there's just right. no way that'll ever happen. Um, what I would like to see is more people, you know, like, so right now it's hard for cooks who are out of work to find jobs. Yeah. Um, I, what I would like to see is more people getting interested in something like the craft of, of butchering and starting to see more neighborhood butcher shops pop up, starting to see not just in the major cities, but in small cities and communities all over the country. I mean, it's it really gets back to what I touched on earlier is that this has to be a community oriented thing. You know, like when I first took over this job at PQM, I told all the marketing people and all that stuff. It was like my goal first is for the people in the West Loop and the Fulton Market area to think of PQM not as a specialty store, but as their neighborhood butcher shop. Mm. And we've adjusted the way we sell things here to reflect that. And I think that if several neighborhoods throughout Chicago had that, and if several neighborhoods throughout the country had that, and you had real community-based places to buy your food, you'd start to, you'd really start to move the needle because there's nothing that's going to make it go 180 degrees. But if these small community-based stores start popping up, whether it's a co-op or whether it's a little shop like ours, um, the needle will start to move slowly, but surely. And that's really, that's the best we can hope for. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us. If people want to follow along or get more information about the classes you might be offering or, you know, ask you tips, where can they get in touch? How can they follow along? Um, I mean, you can, you can go to our, uh, you can go to our website, publicqualitymeets.com. Um, there's always info on there about what we're doing. You can see our, our, our sandwich offerings. You can see our meal kits and you can see our butcher shop offerings. We have some of the best bread in the country and that's for sale digitally too. Um, so that's a great place. Um, our social media is really great. We're at public and quality on Instagram. And I, my personal one is Rob underscore Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T. Um, and you know, I'm constantly posting updates on what I'm doing, what I'm excited about and the kinds of things going on. Um, one of the really fun things that we're doing lately is, um, we used to have a burger night every Tuesday and we're, we're doing this as like a to go thing, but we're getting chefs from all over the country to send us recipes for how they want a burger to be built. So like, Mm. you know, like next week we're going to have a Rick Bayless and Andrew Zimmerman and, you know, we're going to have Chris Cosentino give us a burger. And last week we had Ed Lee and like all these great people. And, um, you know, we're selling a ton of burgers, but what we're doing is taking um, a percentage of the proceeds and we're sending them to each chef's uh, employee relief fund. So, you know, in light of all this, we're trying to find ways to, to help our community both locally and as a, as a restaurant community. So if you want to learn more about all that kind of stuff and when these, like these classes and other things come up, um, the public and quality meets website or our, um, our Instagram are, are great resources. Amazing. Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, really appreciate it. And we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks so much for having me, man. It was something familiar Like the sound of the sea I forgot I remembered Like some lost part of me It was only a flicker It was barely a trace Only there for a second
like a heart to a home Reflections at sundown Can make me so sad For there's no way of keeping The day we've just had I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and director of collections and archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch Beef is 100% grass-fed and always antibiotic-free. It's produced from free-ranging American cattle. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about some of the company's accomplishments. Another award that you accepted as a supplier of the year at Whole Foods last year. That was quite a feather in, the, in, the, in our cap. It was like we had arrived. So how <clears throat> does a producer become supplier of the year? What, I mean, what's the secret? We're, we do things very different, completely differently. Um, we've developed relationships with everybody that we do business with and touched every department in Whole Foods that has anything to do with our product. We're also continually educating all of their new team leaders. So we have you know, retreats at our ranch once a year, and then we tell them about all of the stages of production, the ranching lifestyle, the cowboy lifestyle, the type of cattle that we have, the way that we manage them, the way we select them. Um, and that translates into them being able to sell our product more efficiently. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are so excited to be joined by Garden Center, a.k.a. Max Levy. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey, glad to be here, sort of. <laughs> I mean, sort of here. And I'm, I'm glad to be here, but not. I'm not actually here. Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting to go from um, sitting in a room with people and talking to them and, and that physical energy that you get. Um, from having a conversation face to face to now months and months of um, not seeing each other and just chatting. Uh, yeah. It's a different type of connection. Definitely. I feel like people have started, well, I've started anyway to pick up on different verbal ticks as opposed to uh, little cues you get um, visually when you're actually chatting to someone. Oh, I mean, I feel that I'm just stepping on people when they're talking all the time now. Instead of seeing like, okay, their eyes are shifting, their mouth is moving slower. I think they're winding down on what they're talking about. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's 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 impossible to to recreate. I suppose the uh, the what actually talking to someone is like. Um, even if you're talking over video, because it's uh, so much of it is about things that you've learned culturally. What to do with uh you know, physical movements people are making or just, just sort of assumptions that you feel comfortable enough to make uh, and doing it, uh, you know, you feel like you've, you've kind of got to rewrite it a little bit when you're always essentially just talking on the phone. I know. So I want to talk a little bit about the band and, you know, I loved the last album and I loved um, 
really this, and you said it best, this child wonder that you try and pull out of every day. And obviously these days now are, are tough. They're tougher days than maybe some people have ever experienced in their lives. So how are you finding that childish wonder or is this not a time for wonder? This is a time for a different type of self-exploration. I think it's a, it changes a lot. I think at the at the moment I'm not feeling uh, like wonder doesn't necessarily feel uh, appropriate. Um, I think maybe things have been brought into uh, kind of a bit of cultural context. Um, I, I feel I feel great being able to sort of uh, I, li- I live in the the countryside and I feel great to be able to just walk into the into the to the woods um, and hang out or like go and find uh, some some old stuff that's been dumped. Um, but I, I'm feeling very, uh, feel pretty, you know, very, very grim about, uh, about politics and about, um, uh, sort of established ideas of space and stuff like that at the moment. I think you touch on a good point because a lot of people are now thinking about established ideas or the establishment itself for maybe the first time. And uh, how is that, as a artist, as a singer, as a songwriter, how do you perceive that? And how do you, I guess, filter that into your own work and your own thoughts? Um, I guess it's always, to, it's, it's always good to have a, uh, have an, have an idea of where ideas come from or where it's, where, um, I, I feel like I haven't really addressed it very much in my, in my work, R- racism specifically, um, which is, is what's getting me down, uh, in terms of, uh, seeing racism, uh, as being a, mo- a mode of, of social interaction that everyone is involved in. Um, uh, I haven't really addressed it in my music, but I think, I think, um, I've, 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 tr- I've, 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 I've tried to, to, to think about it. I've been thinking about it more in terms of, uh, how I think about the, the world and how I, uh, how I talk to to people online, for instance. Um, uh, but I, 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 you know, I feel like I have, I haven't quite addressed it in my music. I mean, that's such an interesting point that everyone's been dealing with in creating anything. I know that we have really thought about it with, um, the radio show as well Is that how much space and how much do you need to recognize it and how much should you recognize it and your responsibility um, especially if, and sometimes you're privileged not to talk about it or think about it. Now that it's just something that is in the forefront and was talking about it, you know, what can you do? How can you address it? If not directly through your art, then maybe through extensions of who you are and, and your own life. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, in my uh, in my sort of daytime role, I'm I'm, I'm writing about. Uh, history and heritage and space and i think it's uh it's always good to 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 go over what you've written and and think how racist structures might have sort of influenced how you express yourself um in music i think i've kept it very uh i've 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 i've, I've i guess i've utilized privilege to not uh address it as much as i i could have done um uh which is is has always been uh i guess uh, i guess it's just interesting that i haven't i haven't it's very reflective that I haven't uh, haven't thought too much about it. Um, uh, and in the UK, it's very interesting uh, because 
there's this whole bizarre concept in the UK um, that modern racism is uh, American, which is just absolutely untrue. Hmm. Um, where, whereas, in fact, you know, surrounds us in the UK. Um, uh, it's absolutely everywhere, um, but much in a way that is much more ingrained into the the structure of society. Um, in, a, in in ways that seem inherent in society that it isn't. Um, uh, so I don't know. It's it's a, you know I think it's just just reconsider. I've been I've been prompted to sort of reconsider reconsider how how I how I think about space in general and 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 interaction in general uh, with that in mind. Yeah, I know you guys um, consider space and. Uh, in a lot of your lyrics and a lot of the music um, that you you write and you talk about, um, it's interesting to re-examine the concept and the term space uh, as you grow and as things change socially. Definitely, yeah. I think um, uh, I, I used to be obsessed with with history when I was I was younger, um, and the more I the more I, I grow up and see how history is being used as a as a sh- as shorthand for not talking about space, um, the more interested I am in uh, you know time time being a uh, time being a, a constituent portion of space as opposed to a separate thing. Um, so I'm kind of uh, I'm interested in uh, talking about places where uh, different bits of history can come together without being interfered with necessarily. Um, so like, I, I love, uh, junkyards and, 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 mm-hmm. and dig sites and, and bits where kind of, uh, bits at the edge of town where things come together. Mm. Um, well, look, I want to take a quick musical break and get back in sure. this conversation. Um, the first song you're playing for us is garden of eating. Uh, what's the story behind that song? Well, I kind of dug it out of the, uh, dug it out of the, the crates cause it was my, uh, it was in my old band, King of Cats, that I sung this song. But this was the only song mm. about food that I can, I can remember writing, um, and it is uh, about sort of feeling incredibly boastful and confident until you realise that uh, there's um, hundreds of people around you, uh, all with their own, uh, usually kind of superior versions of the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, appropriate, very appropriate. Uh... And I appreciate it because most people uh, do not even have a song that relates even to food. So, um, well, here we go. Garden of Eating by Garden Center here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
wonderful song. Very, very timely. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your last LP, uh, A Moon for Digging, um, which you actually recorded with a band that I love, Porridge Radio, uh, which uh, is one of actually uh, a new discovery for me out of the UK. Um, But what was it like to record this album with the group? And what do you like about collaboration versus maybe recording solo? Um, I I really enjoyed it, actually. It's the first album um, that felt really collaborative. Uh, and I guess it helps that it was it was such a, a good group of, of people um, who I all, all, you know I, I trust them all so uh, so much creatively um, and it felt like a very uh, it felt kind of like a privilege just working with the band because um, I already had the songs planned out um, but loads of things that I couldn't have thought of uh, or things that I just didn't think of uh, they uh, kind of came back at me with in a really like really pleasant way and we're, we're all kind of good friends so it uh it felt good and we recorded it with um uh flowers in london and it just felt like a a very nice sort of collaborative effort and for the for a first time doing it it felt like uh i'm glad i waited for such a long time <laughs> yeah it's um it's always nice i think as you get older and more comfortable in your creative process to bring in more people who you trust to say, don't do that, do this. And and it not be a, a personal reflection, but more creatively supporting of uh, your larger vision. Well, yeah, I think we all knew, because uh, we've all known each other for a long time. Um, so it felt like, um, you know, played, played in each other's bands and stuff. So, and it all felt kind of like uh, we... Uh, we had similar ideas about about you know we 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 knew what page we were on, um, so, which is rare, I suppose. Yeah. Um, now I know mentioned you mentioned before that you're out in the in sort of the country in Yorkshire, correct? Yes. Yeah. In a Calderdale. Um, what is it like out there? What is I guess maybe what is your creative process like right now? Because I, I know right before we hopped on, uh, you were talking about doing some writing and reflecting and things like that. Um, what is it like, yeah. you know, being out, out in the countryside? Um, I, mean, I feel very, very lucky uh, to be out in the countryside because I can, uh, I can, I can get, get out of town without seeing it, seeing any people. Um, and I was sort of trying to, uh, attempting to, to shield um, or you know, just isolate with my my partner, um, uh, and I, yeah, yeah, I feel extremely lucky doing it. It is quite um, creating stuff is more lonely than than usual because I've uh, mm. I've been just sort of up in the loft doing it on my own. Um, I'd love to be doing it with uh, with the band, um, uh, but yeah, I feel I feel like I've I've been writing writing a lot, which is is nice. I'm, I, I kind of. Uh, I get a lot of time to to walk with the the dogs up in the up in the hills and go and find a, there's a really good old dump uh uh like a sort of Victorian like 1800s um fly tip uh in the middle of the woods that I've been going to and finding stuff uh, so there's there's lots to lots to think about without seeing any actual human human beings do you find that this type of loneliness now 
uh, is a different type of loneliness in other times that you've been writing and, and part of your internal creative process? Um, I would say, uh, I feel in, in a way, I mean, it's, 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 it's strange cause I, I, I am, I'm living with my partner. So I'm, I'm not lonely in that sense. Um, uh, but not seeing other, other people or going to shows or anything. Um, mm. I'd kind of started on that route anyway, um, because of moving out into the countryside, um, and moving away from the band. Like I live a few hundred miles away from the, the band as well. So I'm kind of, um, I'm relatively comfortable with, uh, with not being around, uh, around too many people. Um, but I, I'm kind of worried about how comfortable I am actually. About co- being so comfortable with being so out there. Yeah. Like, or, um, kind of comfortable with, uh, not, socializing too much like it's quite scary the idea of uh uh of, of socializing um with people again to be honest yeah i think there's definitely a trepidation of going back into larger settings of people or that community that you never thought twice about um especially with everything that's going on right now at least health wise yeah for sure um it's the the idea of going into a place where you can't really control your environment is is scary i think yeah um well that dovetails nicely at least into the title of the next song talking on the phone which is i know something that i have been doing a lot more of these days um what's the song about uh what's the story behind this next track that you're going to play for us uh, well, actually, actually i wrote it during uh it's, it's a really recent song um i wrote for a, for a compilation um uh, a week or two ago um and it it is just about uh kind of going on a on dog walks and 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 and, and talking on the phone to people and realizing that um just talking to someone and hearing their voice you can you can forget about anything else so i like um kind of enjoyed writing about not not feeling or not seeing stuff i love it well here we go garden center talking on the phone on snacky tunes on heritage radio network.org
great song. Definitely, as I mentioned before, been talking on the phone more. Um, I don't think I realized how much I missed the random phone call from a good friend. I, ha- I had one uh, yesterday for one of my buddies uh, in New York. And it was so nice to see the phone ring and to be like, oh, yeah. like you're you're going to you're going to take at least 15 or 20 minutes out um, to be on a call with me. Like that is a dedication of, of part of your day. And I was like, oh, I I really like this. Yeah, it's uh, I've been I mean, yeah, in a similar situation, talking a lot more on the phone now and uh, and enjoying enjoying it lots. Like uh, I've even like talked to like members of my family that I haven't talked to for for years. <laughs> Like yeah. more than I had, you know, I, I wouldn't have uh, seen him, <laughs> even though. No. Yeah, and, and yeah, now no, I'm I've, talking to him on the phone. I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm have a better relationship with him, <laughs> just because we can't see each other. It's definitely a reexamination of relationships during this definitely. time, and I think that what people will probably come out on the other side thinking is about. What are your relationships that matter? Who are the people you spent time with? Who are the people who spent time with you? What did people do during this time? Um, and I think that that's going to change maybe the way that people interact with their friends and family moving forward. Definitely. Um, I think it really uh, exposes um, how little effort it is other than sort of mental effort to, to reach out to people. Um, it's never been easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I want to talk about this EP that you put out on Bandcamp, um, which was called Pipe, uh, which was also a cassette, I believe. Yeah, um, very, very small run. Very small run. Was it so on the page it says limit to 10 only? Was that like 10 per order or 10 in total? It 10 in total because I only had 10 <laughs> blank cassettes. I love it. Um, What's the story behind it? And also there is a big charity component to it as well. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was going to various bail funds in the, in the States. Um, uh, the, the concept of, of bail is really disturbing to me and to a lot of people. Um, the idea that you, that there's an element of, uh, of, of, of freedom before charge that you have to pay for. Uh, it seems like absolutely, uh, mafiosi, um, and also, uh, inherently racist and wrong. Uh, and I, uh, I, I just, I've just been writing a lot of songs since not going outside, well, not, not going into town or anything very much. Um, and just thought it would be a, a good time to compile some, uh, some songs. Amazing. Um, you know, it's, it's been another question that's popped up as well, not just about um, talking or dedicating art to to social issues and things like that. Um, and I've seen it with restaurants as well, um, who are putting their part of their proceeds to it. But money made from art during this time, going to things like bail funds or Black Lives Matter or different charities. Do you see that as something that you're going to be working into all of your future releases and, and part of... Um, you know, the art that you make and that you sell is having some sort of charity aspect. I think certainly the stuff that I put out myself, um, I guess it gets a bit more complicated when it's done through a record label. Uh, mm-hmm. But any stuff that I have the power to do myself. Um, yeah, I, I definitely want to 
uh, use it to to help people as opposed to um, what I usually do, which is using it to get a couple of hundred pounds to then waste on mm. on stuff. Like, um, I, I think uh, it it just uh, feels better, and it is better. Amazing. So I want to make sure that we have enough time for one more song. Um, but what do you have coming out in the next few weeks, few months, next year? Um, singles, albums, other tape cassettes. Uh, what are you working on right now that people can look forward to? Um, well, weirdly, before before this lockdown started, um, I started writing an album about um, streaming sports um, and hmm. uh, and uh, sort of feeling disconnected from the re- the real world and spending a lot of time online. Um, and just the uh, the general experience of of, of trying to vi- vicariously live through these very um, kind of inconsistent and illegal buffering streams, um, and r- relying on them as outlets for emotions that you can't express. Um, and then lockdown started, and then that was kind of what everyone started thinking about. Lots. Um, so I've got an an album almost finished um, that is about that. Um, and, uh, what I really want to do is, uh, start sending, sending stuff to other members of the band and then we can all work on it together, which would be good, which would be good. Th- th- that song, uh, Tannoy that I recorded is, um, is about, uh, an experience of someone watching, uh, some terrestrial TV boxing in the late 1990s, uh, of a terrible, terrible boxing match, um, and I, I wanted to sort of place it in the album as uh, a sort of another an, another example of vicarious living through other people's physical action. Well, awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I appreciate the open conversation that we had. It's really great to connect with you all the way from LA to Yorkshire. Um, and hopefully uh, we get through this and, and, we can maybe come for a, a walk with you in the woods and uh, look at some of the old Victorian dumping grounds. Cause that to me sounds absolutely otherworldly and amazing right now. You got to see it. It's a nightmare. The, yeah. Oh my God. The English wow. countryside now is a nightmare. Um, look, if people want to find <laughs> you online or buy any of the music or support the EP or follow you on Instagram, where can they go? Um, probably the best place is um, gardencenter.bandcamp.com. Um, uh, and that's uh, also where you'll find pipe, um, and all of the proceeds from that go to uh, uh, go to various bail funds. Amazing! And for all of us uh, American listeners, that's center spelled the the proper English way with an R E at the end. So just to make sure that you you get that right. Um, thank you so much, and also thank you to Leo Leo and Canon Records for putting us in touch. Yes, big shout out to Leo. Uh, here we go, Garden Center playing Tanoi, Tanoi, sorry, Tanoi on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. We will see you next time.
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.